Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One year later, the investigation into the deadly January 6th riot enters a new phase. What the committee has learned about the impetus of the attack and the role of the former president. I'll speak to January 6th committee chairman Benny Thompson and Maryland Governor Larry Hogan next. And tidal wave. Hospitals brace for more COVID patients as the Omicron variant triggers more remote learning and travel delays. What really counts is making sure people don't get sick. How worried should Americans be about what's to come? Dr. Anthony Fauci joins me to discuss ahead. Plus, remembering Reed. From a house with no running water to the highest perch in the Senate, the late Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, in his own words on his legacy and his parting push for Democrats now. I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the state of our union is hoping for a good year. Happy New Year. It's not where many expected to be at the start of 2022, facing new restrictions and soaring cases from a pandemic that has now killed more than 800,000 people in the U.S. And this Thursday, January 6th, marks the one-year anniversary of the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. Despite the months that have passed and hopes that the country might come together, the nation remains bitterly divided and influenced by the lies that instigated the attack a year ago. A brand new poll from The Washington Post and the University of Maryland shows 92 percent of Democrats believe former President Trump bears a great deal or a good amount of blame for the attack on the Capitol, compared to just 27 percent of Republicans. The poll also shows that one in three Americans now believe violence against the government can at times be justified, the largest share in more than two decades of polling. In Congress, the January 6th committee is attempting a reckoning, investigating to understand and expose what went wrong that day and what role the former president played. Here to discuss that work is Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi, the chair of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attacks. Thank you so much for joining me, sir. Happy New Year to you. Um, First, generally, have you been able to determine how much of this was pre-planned? And how much the president and his allies were involved, potentially, in the attack? Well, thank you for having me first. Happy New Year. Let me say that what we have been able to ascertain is that we came perilously close uh, to losing our democracy as we've come to learn it. Uh, Had those insurrectionists been successful, We're not certain what we would have had, had it not been for the brave men and women who protected the Capitol in spite of being woefully outnumbered. Uh, We were in a difficult situation. We know former President Trump invited people to come to Washington on January 6th, that he said it was going to be wild. 
we know that the speeches at the Eclipse uh, weaponized a lot of people uh, by telling them that people at the Capitol were trying to steal the election from them and they should go and be heard. So we are now in the process of interviewing witnesses, uh, mm -hmm. collecting thousands of pages of uh, documents uh, to say what actually occurred. As you know, that's the charge of the committee, mm -hmm. to get to the facts and circumstances. I can tell you right now, uh, there were a lot of missteps as to whether or not they were part of a broad plan. That's what we're looking at. Uh, but there are things in terms of communication uh, between the Department of Defense and, and the National Guard, between state and local law enforcement, between intelligence gathering agencies, mm -hmm. should not have been. And so we're looking at it, and that's part of the body of work uh, that our committee is doing on a daily basis. Let's focus on the former president. You are narrowing in on those 187 minutes um, in action by then-President Trump during the attack. You have testimony indicating that he was watching television coverage. You also believe he tried to tape a video several times on January 6th telling his supporters to stand down. So what is on those tapes? And if you can tell us more about what you've learned about what he was doing during the attack. Well, part of what we are trying to get as a committee uh, from National Archives is the exact records of what occurred on that day. Uh, the president has been in court trying to prevent us from having access to it. President Biden has said executive privilege does not apply. Uh, there have been two court cases uh, that former President Trump has lost on that issue. And as you know, it's before the Supreme Court now. Uh, if we are successful, and we think we will be, uh, we are convinced that we'll have access to those 187 minutes of whatever occurred. But the, the harm that I see is the President of the United States seeing the capital of the United States under siege by people he sent to the capital and did nothing uh, during that time. Something's wrong with that. So we need to find out who was calling, who was texting, who was emailing uh, during those 187 minutes to see whether you, or not uh, that information will let us know if people uh, were part of the problem. Do, do you think that lack of action on January 6th may actually warrant a criminal referral? Well, the only thing I can say is highly unusual for anyone in charge of anything to watch what's going on and do nothing. And is it criminal? We will as, well, we don't know. Uh, we're in the process of trying to get all the information. But I can say if there's anything that we come upon as a committee that we think would warrant a referral to the Department of Justice, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's our oath as members of Congress. So it's not just that, it's, it's any of the other things we're looking at. Mm -hmm. If there's any uh, confidence uh, on the part of our committee that something criminal uh, we believe has occurred, we'll make the referral. Let me just ask one more question about uh, the former president and what he was doing or not doing 
as the Capitol was under attack. I know you're still trying to get the records, but you have spoken to a lot of people, maybe people we don't even know about. Have you learned from witness testimony more about what he was or wasn't doing? Uh, yes, we have. Uh, we have significant testimony that leads us to believe that the White House had been told uh, to do something. Uh, we want to verify all of it so that when we produce our report and when we have the hearings, uh, the public will have an opportunity uh, to see for themselves. But, uh, Dana, to be honest with you, what occurred on January 6th played out in full view of the American public and the world. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that that never, ever happens again. So we need to get it right. We need to get all the facts and circumstances. And that's what the committee's body of work is about uh, doing at this point. Did or has the former president obstructed an official proceeding of Congress? Well, uh, what he's doing is the typical Donald Trump uh, modus operandi. Uh, he sues, he goes to court, he tries to delay. Uh, if he continues to be successful at delaying, obviously it inhib inhibits the committee's work. Uh, we're doing a lot, but we have to have access to the records. Uh, President Biden has said executive privilege uh, does not apply. So we think uh, we will have access to a lot of the records necessary for us to complete our work. Uh, if we have access to the records, uh, then former President Trump's mm -hmm. wishes on delaying uh, will have no bearing on our, our work. So your fight for access to those records from or of the former president is now before the Supreme Court. And in a brief, he is arguing that a comment that you made about his potential criminal behavior means your committee is overstepping its legislative purpose and making a, quote, mockery of the Constitution. What's your response? Well, you know, he makes two arguments in the same case. He first says we have no legislative purpose. Then he says, well, you do have one. But now you're doing something else. Uh, former President Trump can't have it both ways. We have a legislative purpose. Uh, we take an oath of office uh, as members of Congress. And if we see something that we believe to be illegal, we are obligated as members of Congress to make the referral. Now, after that, it's up to the Department of Justice to determine whether or not there's merit. But I think making referrals has nothing to do uh, with our legislative purpose. And so, again, it's the, the, the misinformation that came about because of the, the loss of the election uh, and the you, continued misinformation that Donald Trump is known for. Mr. Chairman, do you have any evidence uh, by the president or anybody around him uh, of, of financial fraud, that they committed financial fraud? Well, what we have, uh, we have created a special task force within our uh, committee to look at the financing of what went on uh, toward the January 6th um, uh, insurrection, I'll call it. Uh, we're looking diligently at it. Uh, we have some concerns, but we've not made those concerns public at this point. But we do think it's highly uh, concerning on our part that people raise money for one activity and we can't find the money being spent for that particular activity. 
So we'll continue to look at it. Uh, and the financing is, is one of those things that we will uh, continue to look at very closely. I want to ask you about the makeshift war room at the Willard Hotel run by top Trump aides like Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani. What have you learned about their communication with the then president ahead of the January 6th attacks? Well, part of our work is to try to get access to uh, the records on that day. Uh, who paid for it. Bernie Carrick is uh, significant. Mm -hmm. He started cooperating with our committee. We look forward uh, to that uh, cooperation to continue. Uh, The hotel uh, has been asked to provide information for us. So we're in the process of doing our investigation. And and again, uh, for people who are assembled to change the outcome of a legitimate election, is significant. Those individuals who were there, uh, what they determined, uh, we have seen records indicating that there was a written plan on what needed to happen. So we need to just get all the information and and review it, talk to the people that in- investigation will lead us to, and then we'll make a determination as to next steps. Any sign yet whether or not there was communication with the then president from within that war room? Well, we're in the process of gathering that. And part of the National Archives uh, request, as well as the request from uh, uh, Mr. Carrick and others, will help us determine that. Okay, Mr. Chairman, I want you to stay right there because we're going to talk about a lot more, including what's ahead for your committee after a quick break. Welcome back to State of the Union. We're back with Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson, the chairman of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Uh, Mr. Chairman, let's talk about your public hearings. You've promised that the public will see, quote, non-traditional hearings to tell the story of what happened on January 6th. What does that mean by non-traditional? Are we going to hear from specific people? Do you know who yet? And when will those hearings begin? Well, thank you very much for asking. What we plan to do uh, in this coming year with our hearings, we'll look at uh, some of those state and local election officials uh, who, as you know, are charged with conducting the elections uh, to determine whether or not uh, the elections were fraudulent, uh, whether or not they determined that fraud occurred. Uh, We'll also talk to some government officials, uh, some who uh, actually said to this administration, uh, we can find nothing wrong uh, with the elections. Uh, as you know, there were some people in the Department of Justice mm-hmm. who said to former President Trump uh, that if you politicize the Department of Justice, we're going to leave because that's not who we are. So we'll look at that. We'll talk again to uh, individuals who came uh, to Washington under various circumstances, but we'll tell the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk to the National Guard people who, uh, as you know, sat for over three hours ready to come uh, help the Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police defend the Capitol, uh, but they were not authorized to go. So- uh, some people have said they should have gone. Others said uh, we don't know why they didn't, but mm-hmm. we'll get to all those facts because That's part of 
what happened on that day. And, and there's a belief that a lot of what happened on that day wasn't a comedy of errors, but a, a planned, coordinated effort. And so our hearings will determine whether or not uh, what occurred on January 6th was a comedy of errors or a planned effort on part of certain individuals. Well, you've been investigating this for six months now. You're the chairman of the committee. What do you think the answer to that question is? Well, it was not a comedy of errors. Uh, I can assure you that. Uh, but we want to, before we go forward, we want to get all the evidence. That's why uh, we're talking, we've talked to over 300 people. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some 30,000 plus documents that we've received. Right. And the staff is working night and day to try to get uh, to what actually occurred. And so before we just run out with a story we can't uh, uh, defend, uh, we'll get to what we believe is the truth. And that's the charge that we have as a committee. So one of the many things that you're looking at is the uh, involvement of people who you currently serve with, re uh, Republican members. You say Republican Congressman Jim Jordan talked to then-President Trump on January 6th, and Republican Congressman Scott Perry tried to convince him to name a loyalist as acting attorney general. Neither Jordan nor Perry is cooperating. Are you willing to subpoena them? Well, let me say that both those gentlemen, uh, based on the statements you've just read, have acknowledged that they either talk uh, to the president on January 6th, like Jim Jordan has said, uh, the other gentleman, uh, Mr. Perry, uh, tried to replace the current attorney general with somebody else uh, who would uh, do the wishes and bidding of President Trump mm -hmm. with respect to the election. And we've asked him to come in voluntarily. Now, we will look at whatever opportunities we can to get those people to come in. Does that include a but subpoena? Again, Dana, well, we'll look at it. Uh, I'm not going to that. I would hope that those individuals who took an oath of office uh, as a member of the Congress would come forward. That's why we've asked them to come voluntarily. Uh, and we think coming voluntarily uh, mm -hmm. should do it. Now, if not, then obviously we'll discuss uh, what other options that we will have available to us as a committee. But it's unfortunate that with what we saw on January 6th and what most of the members who've acknowledged was a very dark day uh, that occurred in this country. They won't so, come forward and help us guarantee that it'll never happen again. We, we saw some uh, new video that uh, was released last week, really intense video. You see them showing rioters pushing police back and uh, some very, very violent stuff. Are you worried that an attack on our democracy like we're seeing right there with our own two eyes on uh, January 6th last year could happen again going forward? Yes, I am. Uh, our committed to it, the Capitol. Uh, we saw uh, all those points and some others that's not in that video uh, that really causes us significant concern that unless we get it right, uh, given the attitude of what's occurring in this country now, uh, it could happen again. Uh, when I see people legitimizing, uh, storming the Capitol, 
and the activities around it, I'm very concerned. Uh, I'm concerned to the point that sometimes people feel they can break the law if they are dissatisfied. The greatness of this country, Dana, it has been, we settle our differences at the ballot box. But now all of a sudden, there's a mindset out here that's saying, if my candidate loses, then I can tear the place up simply because my candidate did not win. Chairman Thompson, thank you so much for joining us. We certainly look forward to having you back as you are able to learn or uh, express more publicly about what you are learning. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And Chairman Thompson will be back for a special event on the one-year anniversary of the Capitol attack, including the latest on the investigation and remembrances from people who fought for democracy that day. That's live from the Capitol January 6th, one year later, Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And the Republican Party has largely accepted former President Trump's election lies. Is there anything that could change that? Republican Governor Larry Hogan is next. Welcome back to State of the Union. Last year's attack on the Capitol has done little to distance the majority of the Republican Party from the former president. But there are a small number who speak out denouncing the attack and those who instigated it. One of those Republicans is Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, and he is here with me now. Thank you so much for joining me. Happy New Year to you. Uh, Let's start with what polls are showing about Republican voters. They overwhelmingly believe the election lies that fueled the Capitol attack, and Republican candidates across the country are playing into that belief and trying to win primaries that way. So can American democracy survive when these lies have become so deeply ingrained in your party? Well, that's a great question, Dan. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I continue to speak up and and tell the truth about you know what happened because I think it's uh, it's critically important. I mean, it's it's frankly it's crazy that uh, that many uh, people believe that uh, uh, you know things that just simply aren't true. That they believe a, a, a different version of reality. But look, let's face it. There's been an amazing amount of uh, disinformation that's been spread over the past year, and and many people are consuming that disinformation and believing it as if it's fact. Uh, to to think that. Uh, the violent uh, protesters who uh, who a- attacked the Capitol, our uh, our seat of democracy, on January 6th was just tourists, you know, looking at statues. It's insane that anyone could watch that on television and believe that's what happened. You spent January 6th fielding desperate calls to send help to the Capitol, but you struggled for hours to get approval from top Trump administration officials to de- deploy the Maryland National Guard. Have you heard from the January 6th committee? Have you been asked to go, come and uh, give them information about what happened? And have you learned anything more about why that delay happened? Interestingly, I have not heard from the committee. Uh, and uh, as you're pointing out, I had a pretty involved role that day. Uh, uh, you know, I got calls from the leader of, leaders of Congress who were trapped in, uh, I think, uh, the basement of uh, an undisclosed location when they were whisked out of the Capitol, pleading for help. Um, I immediately sent uh, nearly 300 uh, riot-trained Maryland State Police to the Capitol, and, and we were trying to send the National Guard, and we kept uh, requesting up and down the flagpole from our, our Adjutant General and the Maryland National Guard, requesting the head of the National Guard to the Secretary of the Army. 
Uh, we were repeatedly denied uh, approval to send the guard. I called them up and activated them anyway and kind of started staging them at the border of, uh, of the district ready to get the approval. And it took two and a half hours before Ryan McCarthy, the Secretary of the Army, called me and, and asked, uh, asked for our help. And we immediately sent them in. I believe the Maryland National Guard was the first to arrive at the Capitol. Uh, uh, the the state pol Maryland State Police came in right after the Metropolitan Police, and the Maryland National Guard came in right after the D.C. Guard. But do it was you, hours, two and a half hours late. Know, yeah, do you know anything more in the year that has passed about why it took so long? No, I mean, that, I think, is one of the things we need to get to the bottom of. Uh, you know, you could give the benefit of the doubt and say it was the fog of war, there were miscommunications up and down the chain, or there's, you know, something more involved. But I, all I know is we were, uh, we required to have the approval of the Secretary of Defense, and we didn't get it. Let's turn to COVID. You tested positive for coronavirus just before Christmas, even though you are fully vaccinated, you are boosted. And you're a prime example of the really frustrating phase we are in right now when even people who do everything right, like you, can still get sick. Well, with, yes. And, and I, luckily, because I was fully vaccinated and boosted, I didn't get really sick. I, I did uh, you know, self-quarantine and isolate for 10 days, as we recommend everybody does, because I didn't want to get anybody else sick. Uh, but because I had that protection, I had sort of a bad cold. Uh, but, you know, what we're faced with now, unfortunately, this new Omicron variant is uh, impacting just about everyone, including many people who are fully protected. Uh, but it's keeping them out of the hospital. And that's the thing we have to keep in mind. I mean, these vaccines were designed uh, to, to uh, help stop serious illness and death. And they're working beautifully that way, because right now we have 92 percent of our state vaccinated here in Maryland, one of the most vaccinated in the country. But we have uh, overflowing hospitals. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that 8% of the population who has not been vaccinated is responsible for 75% of all the people that are filling up our COVID so, beds in so the hospital. And so we're, we're still encouraging people to get vaccinated, get those boosters. And we're taking all kinds of emergency actions to help our hospitals and our nursing homes, because here we are, uh, you know, nearly two years later, and it's like deja vu where we're faced with, with this emerging variant uh, you know, sim very similar problems to what we had at the beginning. Well, there are more than 2,000 COVID patients hospitalized in your state. And the Maryland Hospital Associ Association warned this week that medical facilities are nearing capacity. You just alluded to that. Um, are you doing yeah. enough to keep up with the demand? Will you call on reinforcements like retirees, students, and the National Guard, speaking yes. of, uh, to help? So we've been, uh, you know, we've been uh, talking about this problem for nearly a month and preparing for it, but you can't really manufacture doctors and nurses that don't exist. And, and frankly, these heroes on the front line that have been working so hard for two years, there's mm -hmm. fatigue, there are people who are working in hospitals that are coming down and being infected. So we're taking all kinds of actions. We've already, uh, we put $100 million of emergency funding into our hospitals and our nursing homes. We waived requirements. Uh, for out-of-state nurses and doctors and healthcare workers. We've sped up the graduation of our nursing students so they can get out early and get out to help. We've called up the Maryland National Guard, and we're continuing to take actions every day, nearly every, everything that uh, anyone can think of uh, to help us get through this. Look, we believe that um, the, the next four to six weeks are, are really going to be a terrible point in this crisis, and it's mm -hmm. potentially going to be the worst part of the whole two-year fight. And we're going to take and continue to take 
every action we possibly can uh, to, to help our hospitals, our nursing homes, and to keep people safe. Uh, our focus is what it's always been uh, since uh, last since two years ago, and that's so, you know uh, trying to prevent hospitalizations and deaths. Governor, before I let you go, I have to ask about uh, Washington Post extensive investigation that they published this week about your use of an app, which allows you to send messages that delete within 24 hours. According to the Post, you use the app to coordinate with state employees, direct Maryland's pandemic response, comment on media reports. Now, Maryland law requires public officials to preserve records and communications. Can you guarantee that nothing official that should have been archived was in those messages? Yes. Uh, so look, we're we're uh, we take transparency uh, very very seriously. It's something we focused on for you know the entire seven years that I've been governor. It was a pretty misleading uh, piece done by this reporter in the Washington Post. Look, do we ever have communications, you know, uh, casual uh, conversations or chats with people inside and outside the government about things that are happening in the paper? Yes. Uh, do we do we not preserve official government uh, documents? Absolutely, we do, do not do that. We preserve them all the time. We, we respond to literally uh, hundreds and hundreds of requests for, uh, for, for freedom of information, put out probably nearly a million pages of documents. We're going to continue to be as transparent as we possibly can. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's no, no, this does not impact us at all whatsoever in having uh, personal conversations and chats about things that are happening. Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, thank you so much for joining me. Glad you're feeling well. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Dana. Happy and New Year. You too. And a top medical expert warns the U.S. is weeks away from a viral blizzard. But is there reason to hope by next month things will be better? Dr. Anthony Fauci joins me next. Welcome back to State of the Union. It's a new year, but with cases soaring to new records, it doesn't exactly feel like a fresh start. Joining me now, President Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Happy New Year to you. Um, so coronavirus is thank now you. infecting nearly 400,000 Americans every day. We know that deaths and hospitalizations typically lag behind, but there are some signs that the Omicron variant may actually be milder. So do you foresee a spike in hospitalizations and deaths? Well, there's certainly going to be a lot more cases, Dana, because this is a much, much more transmissible virus than Delta is. So quantitatively alone, even if you have a virus that it looks, in fact, like it might be less severe, at least from data that we've gathered from South Africa and from the UK and even some from preliminary data from here in the United States, the only difficulty is, is that when you have so many, many cases, even if the rate of hospitalization is lower with Omicron than it is with Delta, there's still the danger that you're going to have a surging of hospitalizations that might stress the healthcare system. So it's kind of mm -hmm. like a very interesting, somewhat complicated issue where you have a virus that might actually be less severe in its pathogenicity, but so many people are getting infected that the net amount, the total mm -hmm. amount of people that will require hospitalization might be up. So we can't be complacent in these reports, which are likely accurate, that it is ultimately in the big picture less severe. We're still going to get a lot of hospitalizations. Right. OK. So what you describe is hospitals that we're already seeing overwhelmed, facing staff shortages in particular, airlines canceling 
thousands of flights. The FAA is warning travelers to expect even more. In New York, subway services are reduced because of the surge there. So should Americans be preparing for major societal disruptions in the coming weeks? And what will that look like? Well, certainly, uh, you know, when I say major disruptions, you are certainly going to see stresses on the system and the system being people with any kind of jobs, Dana, but particularly with critical jobs to keep society functioning normally. We already know that there are reports from fire departments, from uh, police departments in different cities that there are 10, 20, 25, and sometimes 30% of the people are ill. That's something Mm -hmm. that we're going to need to be concerned about because we want to make sure that we don't have such an impact on society that there really is a disruption. I hope that doesn't happen. What the CDC is trying to do is trying to get a position where, in fact, when people are without symptoms who are infected, that you can get them back to work a little Mm -hmm. bit earlier than the 10-day, perhaps at five days if they remain symptoms, symptomatic, remain without symptoms, that is, that can go back into society. So let me ask you about that. These are relaxed quarantine guidelines that came from the CDC. And they're coming under fire from some public health experts. CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner sent out a tweet saying, quote, the latest CDC guidelines which allow people to leave isolation after five days without a test remind me of when the public was told we didn't need masks, when in reality the problem was the U.S. didn't have masks. You've always promised to follow the science, Dr. Fauci. Is this driven by science or by the social and business pressure we were talking about? Well, there there are a couple of aspects of it, Dana, that I'll explain. There's no doubt that you do want to get people out into the uh, workplace if they are without symptoms. And in the second half of a 10-day period, which would normally be a 10-day isolation period, the likelihood of transmissibility is considerably lower in that second half of a five of, of a 10-day period. And for that reason, the CDC made the judgment that it would be relatively low risk to get people out. You're right. People are getting concerned about why not test people at that time. Mm-hmm. I myself feel that that's a reasonable thing to do. I believe that the CDC soon will be coming out with more clarification of that since it obviously has generated a number of questions about at that five-day period, should you or should you not be testing people? So you're saying yes, they should. There'll be further clarification of that coming very soon. Well, I'm not saying yes, they should. I'm saying it's something that absolutely should be considered, and I believe the CDC is going to clarify that. So the overwhelming feeling... I have been in favor of that. I mean, I have said that, yes. Excuse me. No, I said I have been in favor of that. But then again, there's there's a big picture of trying to do it in a way that is scientifically sound, but that also gets people back to work. The CDC is doing their very best in trying to get the right balance of getting people back, but doing it on a solid scientific basis. Got it. Okay. well, let's talk broadly about some of the... The things that are making Americans very confused right now, and I want to tick through a couple of key questions and try to get some clarity. First, do at-home rapid tests work to detect Omicron? The answer is they do. And I think the confusion, Dana, is that rapid antigen tests have never been as sensitive as the PCR test. 
they're very good when they're given sequentially. So if you do them like maybe two or three times over a few day period, at the end of the day, they are as good as the PCR. But as a single test, they are not as sensitive. And when the FDA came out and looked at what they did in stacking up against Omicron, they said their sensitivity was diminished somewhat against Omicron. But people should not get the impression that those tests are not valuable. They are very valuable. They're valuable for screening. They're valuable if you do them more than once in a sequential way to tell you whether or not you're infected. I think there was sort of a surge of concern when people said that when when it came out that Mm -hmm. the sensitivity was down. But they are still very valuable tests. Okay. Are cotton and surgical masks effective at preventing the spread of Omicron? Yeah. When the CDC says they are effective, in fact, they are. Are they as effective as an N95? No. But what was being said is rather wear a cotton or a surgical mask than not wear any mask at all. And that's the point that was made. I think it was a consideration that people were saying if they're not effective, well, then don't wear them. They have a degree of effectiveness. And if that's the mask that's available to you, use it. If you want a higher degree of protection, go to a higher quality of mask. But the masks that are being used, the surgical masks, do give you a degree of protection. Maybe not okay. as the ultimate that a surgical, that a N95 would, but you do get protection. How should vaccinated and boosted people behave? Can they go into a restaurant, eat safely indoors right now? You know, when you're having such a, I call it a tsunami of infections, Dana, we are seeing people who are vaccinated and boosted who are getting breakthrough infections. So when you're in a situation where you have so many infections going out, the thing that you want to say is that if you want to do things like that, better do them in a setting where you know the people around you are vaccinated and boosted. And that's Mm -hmm. the reason why I've been saying when asked about the holiday season, the safest thing to do is to be in a home setting, friends, relatives who you know are vaccinated Mm -hmm. and boosted. If you want to go the extra step of safety, then get a quick antigen test, which will give you an extra degree of safety. What you want to avoid are places where you have 20, 30, 40, 50 people, many of whom you have no idea of whether or not they're vaccinated or boosted. That's more risky than in the home setting. That's that sounds like a yes. Um, I want to read a tweet, Dr. Fauci, from Florida Senator Marco Rubio. He said, quote, record numbers testing positive for a sore throat isn't a crisis and people in the hospital for car accidents testing positive is a surge. The real crisis is the irrational hysteria, which has people with no symptoms waiting hours for testing for a test or missing work for 10 days. What do you say to vaccinated Americans saying that kind of thing right now? Well, first of all, that's one of the reasons why the CDC has made this now a movement towards getting people back who are without symptoms after five days rather than 10 days. So that's the exact reason for doing that. If you are without symptoms and you're capable of working, you want to safely get people back to work wearing consistently a mask. The idea 
that if a person gets infected and is without symptoms, that that has no impact on society, those are the people that might spread it to other people who might be vulnerable, who might be elderly, who might have an underlying condition, who then wind up in the hospital. Of course, you don't want to get people panicking over asymptomatic infections, but asymptomatic infections are part of the process that spreads it around to the community, and many members of the community are vulnerable. That's the reason why you have mm -hmm. so many people in the hospital. The last count, there have been 90,000 people that are in the hospital right now and 1,200 deaths per day. That is not mm -hmm. a trivial situation. No, it's not. It absolutely is not. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll have uh, some good news to continue to talk about uh, after the Omicron surge is over. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Happy New Year to you again. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. He grew up in a house with no running water and became the leader of the U.S. Senate. The legacy of Harry Reid and his message for today's Democrats. That's next. Former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid died this week at age 82, and countless obituaries, including one that I wrote, remembered him as a former boxer who fought his way out of abject poverty and excelled in elected office by throwing many a political punch. But as his former aide, Adam Gentleson, wrote this week, that misses something else about Reid that made him really successful. He also wasn't afraid to take a punch. That's what it costs for to know Harry Reid was to spend time with him in the truck stop town of Searchlight, Nevada, where he grew up in a home with no running water. It was hard to make a living, and the, the man that my dad worked for a lot of times wouldn't pay him or give him bad checks that would bounce. He spoke candidly about painful memories. My parents both drank a lot, and I was always so glad when they were broke because they couldn't afford stuff then. That was December 2006, right before he was first sworn in as Senate Majority Leader. His complex personality fully on display. A square-looking guy listening to Cowboy hip junkies. songs on his iPod. Cowboy junkies. You, do know, you know the cowboy junkies? Self-aware and eager to surprise people. He's a walking contradiction. Much has been written about Reed's contributions to the demise of political discourse. You called them Tea Party anarchists, you called them wacky, you called them the weird caucus. That's what they are, they're anarchists. But many of his good friends sat across the political aisle, and he was never afraid of taking heat from his own party for cutting deals. His compromise is not weakness. Consensus building is his strength. He told me he had no regrets about changing Senate rules to do away with the filibuster for presidential nominees, despite Donald Trump later benefiting from that with three Supreme Court justices. I have no doubt that I did the right thing. In recent years, he backed further changes to the filibuster, urging Democrats to finish the job he started. Reid reveled in playing the political bad guy. He saw it as taking a punch for the greater good. I don't really care. Uh, I don't want to be somebody I'm not. You've said that part of your success is you gain loyalty by being straight with people and sometimes telling them things they don't want to hear. That's not always the case with people, but definitely politicians. You can go and buy a resume, uh, experience, good looks, all kinds of things. But the one thing you can't buy is loyalty. And I have determined the only way to have loyalty is you have to prove to whoever you want to be loyal 
to you, you have to be loyal to them. The last time I saw Senator Reid was in Las Vegas, February 2019, already fighting the cancer that took his life and, perhaps for that reason, more circumspect than usual. He hoped he would be remembered for looking out for the little guy, passing the Affordable Care Act, imposing regulations on Wall Street, and helping conserve five million acres of public lands in his home state. But I also want to throw in this. I think that one of the things that I hope that people look back at me and say, if Harry Reid could make it, I can. And may his memory be a blessing. The news continues next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 